The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need for the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. I think most people who don't have military connection probably wouldn't even understand that maybe there is gradations of service. You know, just everybody, you know, was in the military. And so that that is a, a kind of uniform, monolithic kind of way of being. And, and that's absolutely not the case. Welcome, everyone, to The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club, whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Uh, if you have been watching The Scuttlebutt from the beginning and yet not yet given us a review, please do so. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us a comment at sean at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Dot org, uh, or you can like, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube. Uh, any way that you'd like to engage with us, we would be happy to hear from you. Uh, and we also read comments and things on the on the podcast. So uh, please do so if you get the chance. Um, joining us today, this is a very interesting, uh, very interesting guest and a very special guest, Ben Abel. Uh, I came across Ben in when I was doing some research on task and purpose, and came across a, an article uh, Ben wrote. Uh, titled, You Either Went to War or You Didn't, How Deployments Divide the Veteran Community. I was very intrigued by this, by this article, and I invited him to come on the podcast and sort of chat about what he wrote about. Um, so I'm super excited to invite uh, you onto the podcast. Thank you for coming, uh, Ben, and, and sharing your time and your stories with us. Uh, but I'd love you to introduce yourself. Yeah, hey, thanks first for inviting me. I just this was kind of out of the blue, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come and, and engage in the conversation with you. Um, about me, I was uh, born into an army family. My my dad was in, in a young uh, soldier, and we grew up. I grew up mainly in, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And um, when I was about ten, we moved to Germany, and we lived in in probably the most idyllic town in that I've ever been to in the world. I've been to a few towns in the world. Um, in the uh, on the German Alps, it, it was just it was just the most wonderful place that anybody could have grown up. And um, so we lived, lived there for about six years. Um, came back to the States, bounced around a little bit, El Paso, Texas for a while. Ended up um, graduating high school in Key West, Florida, and uh, then moved back to Germany, kind of, you know, bagged groceries at the commissary and drank some beer and, and kind of didn't, it was a little aimless. And then so just joined the army after that. Mm -hmm. um, spent I spent five years in the army as a psychological operations specialist, which is, you know, we do propaganda and, you know, it's, we don't like to say we do propaganda. We do propaganda, um, you know, communications effort uh, on battlefield communications effort, some more strategic stuff. And then um, after that, I did my five years, uh, I got out, met my wife and uh, in the army, we got married. And um, after that five years was up, 
Um, got out, tried to go to school a little bit, didn't work out. We had some, you know, family issues. And then I had to move, I moved back to Fort Bragg and uh, got a job as a public affairs officer for the army for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved to uh, upstate, way upstate New York on the Canadian border at Fort Drum for a couple of years. And then um, uh, wound back up at Fort Bragg. And, and then eventually my wife got a job out here in uh, towards the coast in North Carolina and uh, at the hospital here. And uh, I went to grad school out here and I've, I've been teaching first and second year writing at East Carolina University for the past couple of years now. And so, you know, we raising our four kids and get a dog and a you know, nice little American life that we're living here now. And it's, it's just, you know, it's been a circuitous, but we got to a place that's, that's really comfortable now. So I'm happy. Awesome. Thank you for that, that history. And, and what years did you serve those five years? I was uh, 95 to the end of 99. 95 to the end. Of, okay. So right, pretty much almost right before 9-11. Um, you mentioned yeah, this I, in your article uh, that it was sort of like the, the, the peacetime. Yeah. I, what, yeah, the comedian, Greg Proops, he, he says the peace and prosperity scare of the late nineties, you know, right. when, when, you know, we, there was Bosnia and of course, and in Kosovo and, and those things were happening and, and you know, those weren't great uh, times uh, for soldiers because, you know, we were really deployed and, and it was tough, but we also had, you know, I, I was in an army special operations unit and, you know, we've always had uh, to this day, we have soldiers, army special operations soldiers who are deployed, you know, into 75, 80 countries around the world, basically every day of the year. Mm-hmm. And so um, for us, it, it wasn't really that we were always going to be deployed somewhere. It may not be in combat, but that that wasn't really our, necessarily our job all the time. But we always kind of had that uh, moving around the world being the, uh, you know, global scouts is one of the words that they used a long time ago to be kind of out there and, and have a, an American military presence in countries and, and not be obtrusive and not be, you know, kind of that ugly American presence. Okay. And to dive into your family history a bit. So your dad, he, he saw, I'm guessing a lot of combat. He was, uh, very much involved in the well, infantry. Uh, no, he, he wasn't in infantry, uh, in the infantry. He was a, a special operations guy. Um, okay. he, you know, did, had a couple different jobs within the special operations community, ended up as a, as a special forces soldier at Green Beret, mm-hmm. um, as the, uh, the, in the third special forces group. Um, but before that, you know, he, his, the jobs that he had took him to, he was on the, uh, the hostage rescue mission into Iran where the, you know, we had the, the desert one, yeah. um, Eagle Claw mission. And then, uh, was on his helicopter got shot down in Grenada, uh, during that invasion. And, you know, he's, he'd been around the world everywhere that you can imagine, South America, Central America, Africa, you know, Middle East, Afghanistan. And like, if you name it, he probably has been there. So growing up a military brat, did that is that what sort of got you like to join the military? Did you feel like that was your calling? Uh... You know, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I assume that I just figured that that was the family business and that's just what you do. Yeah. And, you know, um, similarly along the same lines, when I was, uh, I left language school, I was in language school and I didn't do too well and, I, and they reassigned me to a different job. And, um, Russian is a really hard language to learn, um, by the way. So, <laughs> yes, by the way. And so, uh, and so they reassigned me and, and I had to go to jump school and, and everybody, you know, when I was leaving language school to go to jump school, they were like, oh, man, you're going to jump school. I can't believe you're going to jump school. And I'm like, I, I just thought that that's what everybody did just because of the nature of, you know, the, the environment that I grew up in. So I, I, you know, joining the military, I guess I just thought that's what everybody did. Maybe. I don't know. Right. And, and you met your wife who was also in the army. Is that right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. She yeah, she was uh she was an interrogator. She was mm-hmm. and and we were in the same unit and uh, and you know she she was in Colombia and I, when I was in Venezuela and then she came home and I went to Colombia and, and you know when we got out she ended up going to Iraq in two thousand and four. And and uh, and her family also served back to her dad and her grandfather as well. Yeah, her her grandfather was in in the navy, was in the Pacific, and then uh, her her father was was um, was went to Vietnam in, in seven like nineteen seventy seventy one ish mm-hmm. as an infantryman, and so you know he had that that experience, that kind of um, that really really tough experience that I think a lot of our Vietnam veterans had. Yeah, and not not necessarily just the on the ground stuff, but the the coming home and not necessarily coming back to a, a country that understood how to uh, receive the those soldiers, which I think was the challenge that they they have faced for thirty four years now. Oh, totally, and they've and they've really changed up the country in a lot of ways for the better for veterans overall. Never again shall a group of veterans yeah. experience what they experience. It's um, yeah. So I, I I talk about the family history because as we start to dive into your article a bit, um, because you, you bring it up uh, so eloquently in the, in the article, this, I, uh, this idea of like, you come from uh, a lot of history of military and, and conflict, and, uh, but you're a person who served and didn't see conflict. And, yeah. and that is what sort of prompted you to write this, write this article, is that right? Yeah, yeah, well, first, thank you um, about, you know, that writing, but that I guess kind of was the impetus. I was kind of looking around and, and kind of seeing that there were a lot of uh, folks that were in my peer group or uh, people that I knew, spouses that I knew who were having, you know, experiences of, you know, a, a generations long, uh, having, having spent an entire generation, entire military career in, uh, in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I just didn't share that. I didn't, you know, I, I know what it's like, but I don't know what it is, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's, I think there, there's a difference there. Um, what, what I, well, let me, let me interrupt you real quick and I'm sorry to interrupt, but, um, you say, you know what it's like, but you, you don't know what it is. And, and I'm, a, you know, I'm not a veteran. Um, our audience, uh, knows that well, um, for a civilian, like I, I see it in the movies or I hear the stories from veterans. So I don't, I don't know what it like or what it is. So this feels like it's one more step further. It's like, you know what it likes, but, it, but you don't know what it is. Like, can you uh, sort of dive into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot before we 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 spoke, and 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 I keep thinking of it like a gradient. You know, like a, like when you go from a, like a white to a black. You know, all the shades of gray in between. And you know, I think the vast majority of the American public, I mean, you know, just statistically, of course, um, don't have any experience. But then there are some who do. We have military families, extended military families, who who start to kind of have a little bit of an understanding, and then. Um, you know, I, I probably I'm a little closer to the other spectrum, um, but I, I still don't know what it's like to be in that environment where you, you could have a mortar land on you at any time, or you could be shot at any time. I mean, we were in, in Venezuela and Colombia. It was danger. It, you know, there were dangers that were there. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the drug cartels were not friendly to having American soldiers down there trying to keep those drugs from moving up. You know, they have a you know financial stake in that. But but I didn't ever feel really at risk. I didn't feel like there was an immediate threat, like a, like most of our, our, our folks in Iraq and Afghanistan had that immediate threat at all times. Even if you were stuck on a, on a Ford operating base somewhere, you know, mortars are indiscriminate and they don't really care whether you're out, you know, an infantryman or, you know, a special operations soldier or something, they don't really care. Um, but I, I just never had that experience and I, I, it's not eating at me, but I, it just became a, um, 
uh, something that became quite obvious to me that that I didn't share that same experience with people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I knew that there was, you know, there was, there was a gulf that I never would be able to get across. Mm-hmm. I, I know, I know what it's like to carry a really heavy rucksack. I know what it's like to jump out of an airplane at two in the morning. I know what it's like to, you know, do lots of really hard soldier things, but I don't know what that last little, that last step across a very, very deep chasm is. And I, I just, that, there, I guess that was my realization. Was there a piece of you that, that wanted to see that or still wants to see that sea combat? I don't know, you know, I don't know anybody who, who doesn't want to do their job and to be kind of validated in yeah. that, that they are, are good at their job, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to know that they're good at their job. Um, what I know now, um, I've, I guess I've kind of come to, come to um, peace with the fact that I don't really want that for anyone. I don't, I don't want anyone to have to be in that position of, of having to decide whether or not to take another person's life. Um, I, I, I don't know that war makes anything better at this point. And so I don't, I don't think that, um, I would like to know that I could do my job well, but I don't know that I want to have to go to the extremes that I would have to go to in order to prove that at this point. Do you think having a family sort of changed your mindset in that way? Yeah, I mean, I guess it probably has, but I, 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 I don't know. That's hard. You can't do a randomized control trial in your life, but right. um, I, I, you know, I, I assume it. Of course, it has to have something to do with it, but um, I probably would think that no matter what, at this point in my life, whether I have yeah. kids or not, right? I, I just, I don't know that. I, I don't see the value in it. I don't see the value anymore in in, in conflict like this. What? feelings do you think sort of bubble up whenever you think about your service and not seeing combat? You mentioned a couple different things, uh, maybe like red herrings, it seems in the article of like regret or cowardice, or uh, you say yeah. belligerent ennui, which I'd love for you to, to sort of define for me a bit. Um, and it, it, you yeah. know, what, what tends to come up? Um, I, I don't know, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much at peace with it. But you know, it's still that kind of that sense that, um, you know, what could have been or, or, you know, would I have been part of a club that, that, you know, not necessarily a club that I want to be a part of, but one that, you know, I, I was in, but I never really got the full, you, you know, the, the full acceptance from and And, and but it's yeah. kind of weird because I, I did get a lot of, a lot of really positive response from people who were like, Hey, no, you know, you did your, your, your part, um, you know, following, following this, the publication of this article. And then, you know, and and I I don't feel like I've missed necessarily missed out on anything, but but it, there is just that 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 gap of, of of being able to understand other folks who have uh, been in those combat situations or ha- have been in those deployments, those really dangerous times. Um, I, I just think that there's something that I don't understand about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, is your is your father still with us? Uh, yes. Yeah. And have you talked to him about about this idea? Um, I would wonder how, you know, his, his level of service and, and sort of what you went through when you, when you enlisted, like how that the difference in that and, and sort of what his take is on it. Um, we, yeah, it's kind of tough right now between us, but um, it's never been, we never, you know, really been kind of sherry, sherry about that. And I think maybe he's, he's got some reservations that, that don't allow him to, to, um, to want to explore that maybe, yeah. which is fine. My, my father-in-law, I think, is, has, um, has done a lot of work on trying to understand his experience and, and how that's, 
you know, impacted him. And, and, you know, I can see some glimmers of that through, you know, some of the comments that he makes and some of the, those, um, you know, the interactions that we have, but um, I, I haven't really, and, and it's almost, you know, that question, you know, there's always that question that you, there are just questions you don't, you don't ask because, you know, I, I don't want to be the one to have to, to rip the bandaid off of, you know, to get the answer that I need. And, and that's not my, it's not for me to ask for them to, to open themselves in that way if they're not willing to do it. That, that's an interesting point that sort of segues into my, in my next question, this sort of like, yeah. do you, do you feel that there's sort of uh, like a, a, a mental health consequence to not seeing combat, but also being a veteran? Um, I, I don't know that like a mental health consequence for, for no, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's the same thing. I mean, is there a mental health consequence for being, you know, uh, an, an emergency department doctor or nurse? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I share the, the trauma that they experience or, you know, or a cop or a firefighter who has to do with, you know, incredible tragedy every single day. I don't share that same thing. Um, and I, I know that I don't share that same trauma that, um, I don't know, did you, recently there was a, Jim Laporta is a reporter for the Associated Press, he's a former Marine infantryman. He, he, um, he had a really, uh, a really stunning piece yesterday, kind of a reflection uh, about uh, having watched a video of a young child uh, be killed. And, mm-hmm. um, and it was, you know, I, I can't share that. I, I wasn't there, I wasn't a Marine infantryman. And so, um, I, his his experience his lived experience is going to bring him a certain trauma that i know that i don't have and so i don't i don't think i can have that and that's a really that's a really great point of uh and that's where i think you start of you get into the veteran space mm-hmm. and I, I i can see how there would be a divide in in necessarily just like the language the understanding um i i can only imagine like you know showing up at uh um you know the VA, and it, it, and it, there's just like a little bit of a different language between you and 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 maybe someone who has seen combat. And I'm right. trying to understand that as a civilian because my my view of it uh, as a civilian would be that all veterans sort of sit within this space that they all speak the same language. And is is there that divide? Uh, is it as apparent as as it seems? No, you know I I don't I think you probably well you're gonna take me down you know a tangent. Um, that's okay. The, That's the, what the podcast is for. <laughs> you're gonna take me down a tangent about civil military divide as it stands, um, you know, in, in general. And I, I think probably there is, uh, you wouldn't, I think most people who don't have military connection probably wouldn't even understand that maybe there is gradations of service, mm-hmm. you know, just everybody, you know, was in the military. And so that, that is a, a kind of uniform monolithic kind of way of being. And, and that's absolutely not the case. I mean, we have people from every walk of life and every type of experience, uh, life experience that brings you to this place and um, uh, this place of, you know, being in military service. And so um, if you were to, you know, see two veterans, there may be, you know, a million things that are, are very similar and, and a lot of, you know, I'm not saying that there's this, this gulf of difference between me and every other veteran that's been out there, but, but I think there is just that one, that, that sliver. And I think it's a very sharp sliver of um, that, that kind of defines the difference between somebody who has and has not been to combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 it's hard to say just because there's, there is such that divide, that civil military divide, and it's very prominent, I think. I, I, I like that you could get on a soapbox about this because we've been on it for quite a while with the scuttlebutt. One of the reasons we exist is to try to, try to bridge that sure. divide. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great opportunity now to sort of hear more about that uh, in this conversation. That it, what does it mean to you? And, and 
a follow-up question on that is the idea of, you know, you're bringing your kids up, you're a military family. How do you teach them about the military-civilian divide if, if there's conversation or opportunities to do that? Well, I, I mean, we, we definitely talk about, you know, we watch the news with kids at night and we talk to them about, you know, things that we see that are happening in Afghanistan, like Afghanistan right now. Yeah. Um, you know, when we we're down at the beach here, you know, in North Carolina, we have, you know, a huge Marine presence. And so they're always, you know, Marine jets flying over our house. We're down at the beach. They have the, you know, the Ospreys are flying and the guys are, you know, just driving around up and down the beach, you know, checking out the girls in bikinis, I guess. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> they're military so, you know, guys. We, they probably, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but, um, or the young ladies doing, you know, checking out the guys, I don't know, whatever, but, um, but you know, whatever it may be, we, you know, we don't shy away from talking about with our kids about that because I, I don't, while I don't want them necessarily to feel that they, they have any kind of need to go and, and, and have, you know, uniform service. I don't want them that to be something that's uh, foreign to them or mm -hmm. to not, you know, that have some kind of framework with it with, with which, within which to um, understand that that's a, a way of being and that we have responsibility um, as citizens to be part of the decisions that are made, um, national, our national decisions that our, our men and women in uniform have to have to uh, enact on, in, in scary places sometimes. Totally. Um, we always ask this question, a part of our VBC events, um, mm -hmm. is uh, if they came to you and said, hey, I want to enlist in the Air Force, Army, Marines, how would you feel about that? I tell them to go on the Coast Guard. <laughs> I mean, you're at the beach, right? Where, yeah. Where's the Coast Guard? Not at the beach. Um, yeah. Can then I get to come and visit? But unless they're um, unless they're like taking over submarines or something, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I I would I would want them to do what they feel that they need to do, mm -hmm. and if that meant um, you know going and doing the hardest thing, if that's what they really needed to do, um, then that's what they need to do. Um, uh, I would I would prefer them not to find themselves in a direct line unit. I, I you know I I just know that that's that's a very scary place to be, and I I wouldn't want them for that for them. But if that's what they need to do, then that's what they need to do. And I'm not I would never tell any of my kids to not do what they needed to do. It's a very interesting thing because uh, if if you have this feeling of like I, I I didn't get a chance to see combat, but not wishing that for your kids as well. Like no, you don't want to see this, and I didn't see it, but I was enlisted how do you reconcile those, those sort of very different feelings? Um, I can't, asking a I lot of really in-depth questions here on the scuttlebutt. No, no, so no, no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I can't, I can't, um, I can't give anyone else the experience that I've had, yeah. you know, you can't give secondhand experiences and I don't have those firsthand experiences, but I know what it was like to be in a, in the gym at Fort Drum, New York, and to watch a young man who had been burned incredibly bad, incredible bad, you know, burns to the point that he was, um, there was really no way that he, he was going to make it off the battlefield. Um, he made it to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio and, um, and was doing fairly well. Uh, he said that he, he was going to be at Fort Drum for uh, the return, his, his unit's return. The doctor said, you know, if you get on a plane, you're going to die on the plane. You, you can't, your body can't handle it. And he said, I don't care. I'm going to be there. And so, you know, I had to stand there and, and you know, be a part of this and, and experience that with this young man. And it was, 
you know, it, it was enough to pound you into the ground. It was terrible. And I've, you know, sat in the living rooms with, you know, families who have lost their children and, you know, right as they were told, because, you know, the, the media presence, my job was to, you know, to help the family deal with, you know, the crush of media, particularly early, you know, in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, when, when they just got overwhelmed. And, you know, those are, you know, I had in my own family, you know, my, my brother-in-law died in a training accident and we were there, you know, with his family and it was, um, it was horrible. And, and I can't explain that to, you know, my kids or, or somebody who hasn't had that experience, but I can tell you that um, even those secondhand experiences, even, you know, just watching vicariously through other people's lives, um, it's, it's, it's damaging in a way that I, I don't think can be expressed by the people who have been damaged. I don't think it can properly be expressed. Right. And I, I don't want that for anybody. This was your work as a, a, a public affairs officer, a PAO. Yeah, I did that for, yeah, for about 15 years. I, I was a civilian, so I had, you know, I, I didn't, didn't really get the opportunity to go overseas as part of that job. But, you know, we were still back in the States and had a lot of, um, you know, interaction with what was going on over there. And then helping the families, I think, was a large part of it. Was there something that, that was a desire that you wanted to, to be a PAO? Like, is there something that drove you to do that? This seems very difficult work. Um, it's not, it's not all that hard. It's, it's busy. It, it can be emotionally, you know, it's it, the PAO gets kind of, kind of ragged on a lot, you know, and, and kind of put down a lot, but, um, not many soldiers or, you know, any service, um, so I go to soldier, but any service service members generally are not, they'd rather run into a firefight than deal with a reporter. And so, um, you know, our, our job was to, to kind of bridge that, that gap for them. And and ex, and help them explain that it's the responsibility of, of the government to be accountable to the people that we serve, and part of that is um, is being accountable through the press and through the media. And so um, that that was a large part of our job. And so there there was some really emotional, really hard things that we had to deal with. Um, you know, there was a time in in the surges in Iraq in 2000, between 2005 and 2008. I mean, you know every single night at two in the morning, I get a phone call. Okay. We lost another couple of kids. We lost another couple of Joes. We had a helicopter going down at 16. We had the, you know, and yeah, I wasn't there, but you know, after a while, it just, you know, each unit might have one or two or three, but I had one every single day, you know, we had to deal with the families and, and, you know, try to express to the American people who these young women and women and men were. And it was, you know, it, it, it does get a little, burdensome at times I know that sounds like I know it sounds you know awfully whatever but you know like it was so tough little whiny little old me but I, I don't think anybody gets off free if you're associated with the war I don't think anybody gets off free no and you're right and I, and I don't that's not a very it's not an easy position to be in to to relay that message or that information to a to a family and though they and we've had different conversations on the scuttlebutt about um, with veterans who said, you know, uh, or family, uh, military families that said, I knew they were deployed. I knew there was the chance that they wouldn't come back, but I never thought about it. I never, never let my mind go to that. So even they're not, they may be quote unquote mentally prepared for something that, that, that is that, but when it does you're happen, not. it's yeah, you're not, uh, no way. No. Um, and to be the person that relays that information no, I, I don't envy that, that at all. Um, so it's, you know, working with the families in that way, though, had to be in some way, you're there to comfort them as well. Is that right? 
Yeah, and, and to yeah to comfort them. I mean, my job wasn't necessarily to comfort them, but it was definitely there to um, protect them as best they could. And also, you know, something that is is really important um, for a lot of the families is to um, represent their 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 service member, their their husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, to to say to show who that person was, right? To to say to humanize that person. It's not just a name. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to, and, and so, you know, we went out of our way to try to try to help them out with that as best we how could. Did, how did you do that? I mean, as a, as a writer and, and you're a, a, a very talented writer, um, how did you do that through your writing um, to be able to humanize them? Uh, you know, we, we did as best we could. Uh, it, it became, it became very stock and formulaic. Honestly, I could write a, a casualty news release in about 10 minutes. And, and, and that probably was one of the things that really made me um, start to question what I was doing in there because I, I had it had become such a formula. Like yeah. I, I could just, I could tell you, I look at a piece of paper, look at their, their records, their, you know, their enlistment records. And I could tell you everything about them that the press wanted to know. And, but I couldn't tell you who they were. I couldn't tell you what their dog's name was and I couldn't tell you where they went to school. And so that our job then was really to try to figure out how to, to, you know, to get that information to, or, or find a way for the reporters to get the information so that they could, um, you know, humanize and to, to fully color in that person's life. So they weren't just another, um, you know, during the surge, especially in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the surges, it just became another, another five soldiers were killed today and their 10 soldiers were killed today. And, and who are those people? And that, you know, we, we tried our best to help make sure that the, that the American people knew who they were, but um, I think a lot of times it got lost, unfortunately. Is, is that the, the lessons for, uh, I bring it up a civilian like myself is, is, in also attempting to bridge this divide, it's understanding the human aspect of this, that though we may hear the numbers, um, even recently 13 service members mm -hmm. were killed in the, in the terrorist attack at Kabul airport uh, during the evacuation, yeah. uh, hearing the names of these soldiers and understanding a little of who they are um, or were, uh, you know, it, it is part of that, is part of our responsibility as civilians. Yeah, you know, I, I think that is part of it, but you know, I'll get on a soapbox a little bit. I think that um, the that our, our culture has been structured over the past fifty years or so to make it so that um, that you that the you as a, as a non military, you know, you, I mean, you're you're certainly different than most. Um, most folks who are non better non-military community, non-military family, but, you know, for the majority of people who don't have any kind of connection to the military, um, those, we, we in, in those commu communities have been incentivized to not care. Mm -hmm. We have been disincentivized to care, right? And so over the past 50 years. And so I think a lot of that started with the, um, with the uh, end of the draft, right? Mm -hmm. Like 1975, right? And then, so when you no longer have any skin in the game, when you, it's no longer your family, um, that's a disincentivized uh, position to be in. And then also um, when, when we began the all-voluntary force, we started incentivize um, families who were kind of in this military caste system mm -hmm. where, um, uh, where it became the culture of that family to be in there. And so I think that even further separated it. But I, I don't think that def the defense industry uh, really wants people to care to be honest, and that's kind of me getting a little, I, I, I think that, um, 
if people cared, then it might keep, if people did uh, pay attention and care to what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan over the past 20 years, that might have um, impacted um, the way that our military had been deployed. And I, I think that that's not financially sound for certain uh, people within our society. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, keeping people disinterested in what's happening in military communities is probably in the best interest of a lot of um, people who are making a lot of money. Yeah, it's, and it's and, and that's and that's a really hard, that's a really hard hurdle to try to get over because these are people who are are in have significant control over large swaths of communication, over voting, and over all kinds of aspects of our society that disincentivize people into really kind of caring about you know what's happening with our our soldiers and and sailors, airmen, and marines, and the coasties too. And how, how, I guess, and the, and the Space Force now, too. We, <laughs> hey, oh, I forgot about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how do you see that shifting? How, how do we get people to care more? It's a question we ask a lot. There's really no, I mean, education is, is one aspect. And it's like, how do you, how do you educate? Or uh, I had a really great conversation recently on the Scuttlebutt with uh, JROTC and saying, like, should we uh, make JROTC uh, mandatory? Um, you know, you don't have to join afterwards, but you get this idea of service. You get an understanding of military culture. You have, a, you know, there are different positives to being a part of the JROTC without the um, the end result of potentially being in a combat yeah. zone, um, bringing this sort of full, full circle. Do you, do you see a way out of this? Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, one of the ideas that I think has a lot of merit is um, a national national service, and I don't think that that necessarily means national military service, and I, I don't think that means like conscription. Everybody has to do their two years, like you have in a lot of Europe, you know, uh, um, or modern, Israel, right? You know, Western democracies, um, mm -hmm. I, which I, I think there's some value in, maybe some value in that. Um, you know, when I was when I was after high school, I was living in Germany, and I, I was out having a couple beers with this guy, and I was talking to this German guy who drove an ambulance and, you know, he said, he said, um, you know, I, I told him that I wasn't going to be in the military. I was a pacifist. I didn't want to do it. And so they said, okay, well, you can drive an ambulance for your national service for two years. And he said, okay, that's what I'll do. And that's what he, he was doing for his national service. So um, I, I think that we've lost society. We have, we, we've lost a um, kind of a sense of, of responsibility Everybody wants their rights, but they don't want their responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. And those two things go hand in hand and you can't have one without the other. And um, I think there's a responsibility, uh, not necessarily just like a national service or something, but being responsible for the service. If you look mm -hmm. at Congress right now, I think you see that, um, you know, it's a clown show, really. We don't have, they're, they're, the majority of people in Congress aren't serious mm -hmm. uh, about service, about public service and and i think that trickles down like if, if we're voting people into congress into elected positions of leadership who who aren't serious then what does that say about our society are we serious about about governing ourselves and being responsible to one another and i, I just don't see that mm -hmm. i honestly I, I i don't know i don't know what the answer is maybe it's national service of some kind that kind of brings us and binds us back together and and tries to say that hey you know what we're more than the, our differences. We're we're all so much better than what we think that we can be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe national service would do that, but I don't know. If you can come up with a better answer, I'd, I'd like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 give it some thought. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> um, back to your to your article. Um, sure. We had mentioned that sort of like we we 
there's a lot of different things to unpack in there. Do you, do you think there's going to be a part two to the article where you, you sort of dive into maybe the father-son relationship or dive into more of your, your time as a PAO and, and sort of unpack some of those feelings that, that sort of happened during those points in your life? Well, I mean, I've got a lot of writing that I've done. I, you know, I wrote a novel in, that no literary agent apparently wants to read, um, you know, that kind of gets into how, um, what it's like for somebody who's been in the military who comes back and tries to reintegrate themselves back into uh, a non-military community, how that works and, and how that could work. Just in this one instance, this one, one idea that came to me. Um, and so, you know, I've tried to do that, it's, you know, but not very popular. I, I don't think really people are really altogether interested in, in exploring this. You know, if you see that, you know, there's a lot of outrage after um, the, the, the situation that happened in Afghanistan lately, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Lots of people were really mad about it, but they weren't really mad about it in the preceding 10 years when we could have voted, you know, done some voting in Congress to actually uh, arrest some of maybe these, these poor decisions that were being made. Mm -hmm. um, and so... You know, I, am I going to write more about it? I don't know. Probably. I don't know that it necessarily would be uh, in this kind of same venue or format. I don't think I would, you know, necessarily um, maybe familiar relationships again, maybe, maybe in a different way, maybe in a fictionalized way, it might be an easier way to do it, um, mm -hmm. kind of bumping up against some, some uh, challenges within the uh, family relationships, but that's okay. Right. Yeah. I, I, I know those all too well in my own family. So <laughs> yeah, I think we all do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and what brought you to writing? Uh, have you, had you always been interested in it? Is that something that uh, has sort of stuck with you? Where did, where did you say like, this is the path I want to take out of my service? Uh, I, you know, this is just something that I try to do on the side a little bit. You know, I mm -hmm. teach, I teach first and second year composition. So writing is kind of my day job. If that's, you know, the academic writing is different than, than this kind of journal, maybe journalism or, or memoir, I don't know what, what you would call it. Uh, fiction writing is a little bit different. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I like to run a lot. And so store, things just come to me and I try to write them down when I get back. And, you know, it just, I don't know. I think we open ourselves up. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the author, um, Liz Gilbert. Uh, she wrote that Eat, Pray, Love. Um, yeah. But she's got a she's got a book about writing called um, Big Magic, and it talks about kind of it's really a, kind of more, much much more of a spiritual kind of thing. It talks about um, being open to creativity and inspiration. And I don't know, so I, I you know I, I kind of follow along what she says that if if you're willing to open yourself up and let your let the inspiration uh, and the big magic come to you, then then if you you just listen to it, it'll tell you what to do. So mm -hmm. that's just kind of what I, I try to do. I don't know if I'm very good at it, but I try. Well, it works. I, I like it. I enjoy it. So that's okay. Well, that's, that's all that's all that needs is, uh, is yourself. But it, there is that thing about um, the need to write. And we've talked a lot on the Scuttlebutt about veterans finding purpose after service. Um, you know, obviously, with the suicide numbers and different things that, mm -hmm. that are in the headlines that we all know about. Um, but I've found that veterans tend to be entrepreneurial. Uh, mm -hmm. or they find uh, a passion or a desire after service that sort of like they throw themselves into fully. It's, there's a very sure. interesting personality that I've found over the, the last couple of years talking to veterans about when they got out, the, this, this idea of like, I'm going to serve my country and I'm going to do it 110%. And then uh, I come back and I'm going to throw myself 110 or 150% into something else. Um, is, is, is there something in your family dynamic in your, in your, you know, in your home that, that is that, that you try to instill that, like everybody's on the same page, we're moving ahead. Um, I, 
with, with, with my family, my, my wife and kids were, you know, fairly, fairly motivated folks. I think, I don't want to, you know, that sounds a little pretentious, but um, I think we, we just, you know, try to jump into the things that we like to do and do them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, you know, I, I get what you're saying about veterans being kind of, you know, a lot of motivated. There's a lot of lazy folks too. So, you know, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want you to think that like, you know, that there's some kind of monolithic, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of dirt bags in the, in the veteran community too. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that there maybe is a, a bit of, uh, the culture within the military is to be accountable to yourself mm-hmm. and to, um, and to not waste time. I mean, there, of course, there's lots of sitting around and wasting time, but, but to not, um, uh, to, to look for something to do, to make things better, to not wait around to be told to do something, um, that, that is going to make, make life better for you or for somebody else. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, entrepreneurial spirit, maybe is there a little bit, mm, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, well, Ben, I, this has been a really interesting and introspective conversation. I, I've learned a lot in a very short time here. I really appreciate it. Um, and and what I'd love to do is uh, we're going to make sure to post the article for our audience uh, sure. so that they can click on it and, and read through this. Um, if they have questions or thoughts, I'd love for them to, to reach out to me. Uh, and I can forward them on to you if you would like. Um, yeah, I, and, and as a side note, um, can you tell me some of the comments that you've received on the article? Um, yeah, you know, a lot, a lot of it's been, you know, very complimentary and, you know, thanks for your service and, you know, you, you know, trying to kind of ease that, that bridge that divide a little bit, which, which is, is understandable. And I've seen a lot of, you know, Facebook and, you know, um, comments and stuff, which is fine. I ha- I've had got, I've got a couple of, um, emails from people who are, you know, um, cold war era service members in, you know, who were in Germany instead of Korea or in, you know, Germany instead of Vietnam or, or whatever it was. And, um, and they kind of share that this kind of a same sense of not, uh, of being a little bit different, right? Not, not like second-class citizen within the veteran community, but just not having the same entree into, um, that experience, that level of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did get really, a couple of weeks ago, they, I think Task and Purpose or, or one of the, one of the online services, um, news organizations had, had reposted the article and I, I got another flood of, um, another flood of uh, comments back and one of them was was very was heartbreaking hmm. um there was a, a young marine uh a marine veteran who had um was expressing to me that he had been in combat and he had a, a number of people within his family and his generation who had been in the marines or in the air force and you know had all been in combat and um and they kind of all shared very similar experiences but um he had uh, quite recently uh, his brother had, uh, taken his, the, the, this, the Marine's brother had taken the Marine's son, uh, somewhere in the car They had got into a car accident and the child died. And, um, and so what he kind of really started to parallel for me and, and I, you know, it was, it was tear jerking really. Um, he said, you know, the, the parallel, the, the kind of that the parallels that you're making here are very similar to the sense that, um, I know now what it's like to have lost lost a child, and that's a very small community of people, especially on his age group, who have lost children in a traumatic way like this. And he said, "But you know, there's even another kind of gulf that's between me and my me and my brother now because he we we share these completely different experiences with the same occurrence, and we'll never be able to understand one another in this way." 
And, um, and I just, and it really, really struck me really hard that, that, um, we all have experiences and, and, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to, you know, to lose a mother to cancer at a young age or to, um, you know, have been, we're, we're right before September 11th. I don't know what it's like to have been, you know, involved in, you know, have family that were in the towers or something like that. And so, you know, we do have this, this, this kind of, this almost inconsequential military divide that I, I spoke about in this article um, is mirrored in so many different ways in everyone's lives, you know, that, that, that I, I think, um, it's just human experiences is really what it com comes down to. It's just in this case, human experiences between those in uniform. Um, you know, even though over the course of this short conversation, uh, you seem to, sh to strike me and please correct me if I'm wrong. You seem to strike me as somebody who, uh, even in, in the response of the Marine is you, you kind of, you, you, you want to peer into that abyss. Like you want to know what that other side is. Though you're though not able to to get there, there's a, there's a barrier there because of life experience or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, it, do you think there there's a, like an empathetic piece of that, like the, being able to empathize with what that other side is experiencing and and share in a in a on a language that that is foreign to you? Um, I, I would I would hope I would hope that we could tr at least try to do that. I mean, I try. I guess I try to do that as best I can. Mm -hmm. um maybe that's part of what we were talking about earlier about that that missing piece of of, of you know not being able to understand one another this broad gulf between civilian and military communities is not having the the, the groundwork to be able to empathize um I, I guess maybe in this situation with this marine i can empathize because i do have kids too and 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 so that allows you know and, and as you you know you have you would have the same experience that you know if, if this were to somehow be gone i mean how many times have you thought about the, you know what would happen if yeah. you know what would happen if and and you know you don't want to think that and so you know I, I think that that empathy is 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 present because I do have that experience but if we talk about the civilian and military divide I think that that it's a, it's a maybe a different kind of gulf but there isn't that kind of that that common ground from which we can begin to you know acknowledge um, that empathetic uh, impulse maybe. I don't know. That sounds like a bunch of garbage. It does, but also it kind of sounds like the answer, <laughs> like the the empathy of of civilians. The, you know, if, if you can be empathetic towards what the other side is experiencing, maybe there's right. an understanding there that you can start to to get to, as opposed to the shutdown. You're not speaking my language. I don't want to hear it. You're blocked on Facebook. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly hope maybe that that might be part of the answer at least. Okay, well, if anything, we've we've bubbled something up to the surface here uh, on I think the we podcast. The whole thing. We said we're we're done. Wipe your hands. Go back. Go back to bed. <laughs> Get up tomorrow. Find another new world problem we have to solve. <laughs> done. Uh, well, Ben. Um, again, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor. Um, I, I welcome you onto our our VBC events at any time you'd like to join us and and chat and say hi. Um, yeah, we also have a VBC magazine that we put out quarterly. That's not to you know pump the magazine, but I'd love for you to be a guest writer on the magazine if you'd like, uh, and to bring an article to us. Um, we would we would love to share it in that. To our audience, um, I hope that you get it, take a moment to read Ben's article and share your thoughts uh, and comments uh, with us. Uh, also, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. Uh, we're always eager and uh, and would love to hear from you. Um, thank you all. Thank you, Ben, for, for joining us, and uh, we'll you. see you all in the next episode of The Scuttlebutt. 
I want to thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown, and uh, we'll see you on the next Cuddlebutt.